listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. Uh, Today is March 31st and we have another snowy day in New Hampshire. Hopefully it's nice where you are. Um, Today our guests, we have two guests, Dr. Kim Muser and Dr. Shirley Glenn, who will be joining us at at, uh, 3.15. I'd like to introduce Dr. Muser, who is a licensed clinical psychologist and a professor in Department of Psychiatry and Community and Family Medicine at the Dartmouth Medical School in Hanover, New Hampshire. He received his Ph.D. in clinical psychology from the University of Illinois at Chicago in 1984 and was on the faculty of the psychiatry department at the Drexel University College of Medicine in Philadelphia until 1994. In 1994, he moved to Dartmouth School Medical School and joined the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center. Dr. Muser's clinical and research interests include psychiatric rehabilitation for persons with severe mental illness, intervention for co-occurring psychiatric and substance use disorders, and the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. He has published extensively and has given numerous lectures and workshops on psychiatric rehabilitation. In 2007, he received the Ken Book Award from the New York Metro chapter of the National Alliance on the Mental Illness for his book with Susan Gingrich, The Complete Family Guide to Schizophrenia. He is the co-author of several other books, including Social Skills Training for Psychiatric Patients, Coping with Schizophrenia, Guide for Families, Behavioral Family Therapy for Psychiatric Disorders, which is what we're going to be talking about today with uh, Dr. Shirley Glenn. Um, He can be reached at the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center uh, in Concord, New Hampshire. His email is kim.t.user at dartmouth.edu. Welcome, Kim. Um, Thank you for talking with us today about a very important subject, and that's family treatment and family recovery for people who have psychiatric disorders. Hi, Mary. I'm glad to be here. How did you get interested in um, family therapy? I got interested in family therapy because I always had a strong interest in uh, treatment and rehabilitation of people with severe mental illness. And from all the way back in the early to mid-1970s, we knew that the environment in which people lived could have an influence on the course of their uh, mental illness. And family psychoeducation and family therapy approaches aimed at improving communication and decreasing stress levels in families, as well as uh, providing them with information about the nature of psychiatric disorders, really came about as a way of trying to create a more rehabilitation and a positive-oriented environment in the family to help people with severe mental illness. So I essentially became interested in family therapy as a way of helping people with severe mental illness uh, learn how to manage their illness more effectively and in collaboration with others, and helping family members uh, learn skills for working with a loved one uh, and helping them move along on the path to recovery. One of the things that we're going to be talking about today um, is, is about family recovery, and this also applies to families who have um, co-occurring disorders in their family as well, Correct. Yep. what we're going to be talking about today. So people with substance use disorders, this is applicable as well. Absolutely. I know um, historically in the mental health system, uh, mothers were considered to be the, the root of most psychiatric illnesses. There was a psychogenic um, mother. What was that called? The 
the schizophrenic mother, yes, unfortunately, go. going right. all the way back to the 1940s. I mean, you're right, Mary. There, um, there were a lot of theories about how the family in general, and often blaming the mother, uh, were responsible for illnesses like schizophrenia. And, and to some extent, those theories led to difficulties and, and in some ways uh, mistrust between family members and mental health professionals. But fortunately, in the 1960s and the 1970s, most of those theories were really found not to be supported. Um, and instead, people began to look at the family as providing uh, very important sources of social support and encouragement uh, to people with a major mental illness. Uh, and therein uh, came the idea of trying to work collaboratively with families to help them develop skills so that they could support a loved one in improving his or her life. I know. And so re- I was just talking to one of our uh, mothers um, here at Westbridge, and she was saying even today when she hears something um, about her family member when, when that person isn't doing well, she immediately feels guilty because throughout her um, son's life, you know, whether it be at a school or initially when he was getting um, treatment, she always felt like the, the school or the providers were, were blaming her, like she didn't do something well enough, she wasn't a good enough parent. And she said even to this day, even having, you know, gone through some positive experiences, there's still that little pit in her stomach that she gets. Yep, I think it's true. And, and I think that there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that there still are some mental health professionals out there who have outdated assumptions uh, and beliefs uh, that when people have psychological problems or, or develop serious psychiatric um, illnesses such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, severe major depression, that in fact in some way the family must be at fault. And yet we know that that's not true. The other reason, I think, is that it is common for family members, and in particular mothers, to try to take responsibility and to feel bad when their offspring don't do well. And so I think it's a combination of some of these leftover ideas that are slow to die out, although they are in the process of dying out, and sometimes the feeling of responsibility that every parent has for wanting the best for their loved one and also feeling that when it doesn't always work out well, uh, that it must be uh, their fault somehow. And, and I know we, um, we try very hard here at Westbridge to work with folks, and we use um, the behavioral family therapy model, which family members, um, it, I will let you talk about it, but the nice thing that we have found about it is it provides a safe uh, foundation for people to, to discuss what's going on in the family, and it's based on education, and it's not based on traditional family systems where you go back and, and re-look at how the members of the family have evolved. and um, Families seem to find this a much safer model. Absolutely. Uh, and I think you've been laying out some of the reason uh, why that, that is the case. The behavioral family model is really based on the assumption that a psychiatric illness has a basic biological basis, but also that the biological nature of the illness can be influenced by the environment in which they live. Uh, It could be influenced by things such as medication that can decrease the biological vulnerability to the illness. Uh, Substances uh, such as uh, alcohol and drugs can worsen that vulnerability or lessen the beneficial effects of medication. And then there are many things that people can do socially in their environment, such as having good social support, developing coping skills, being involved in meaningful activities, and managing stress more effectively. So even though a psychiatric illness has a biological basis, 
there's lots of hope for learning how to manage that biological vulnerability through both medications as well as effective coping skills, social support, and pursuing meaningful goals. So in behavioral family therapy, the idea is to provide family members, including the consumer with the mental illness or the co-occurring disorder, as well as family members, with basic information about the nature of the psychiatric illness and how to manage it, and then skills for effective communication and solving problems and achieving goals together. And those skills can be helpful not only in helping the consumer, the individual with a co-occurring disorder, achieve his or her goals, but for helping other family members achieve their goals and for resolving conflict, which is just an inevitable part of any close family relationship. Especially when there's a chronic illness involved. Absolutely. Yeah. I know um, most of the families that we've been working with, there's a considerable stress and strain, not only for the the individual, the, the individual, but the individual siblings and the parents. Right. Yes, stress and strain is uh, a natural part of any coping that, that people have to do with a, um, a long-term illness, whether it's psychiatric, substance use disorder, or, or medical illness. And those strains can put everybody uh, under a, a good deal of tension. And so having effective skills for dealing with that stress, for communicating directly and effectively, and for solving problems, we find is an important way of improving the quality of family relationships and, and of family life. And, and I think that what the other part that I think is very important with this model is that it teaches coping skills and communication skills and um, problem-solving skills that um, are, have been just uh, crucial to families recovering and moving on. Right. I mean, everybody benefits from improved communication and problem-solving skills, but we find it's especially important when family members are under uh, the kind of stress imposed by coping with uh, a long-term illness or combination of illnesses, as in the case of people with co-occurring disorders. Having effective communication, effective ways of solving problems and achieving goals can make it so that people can manage these challenges together and enjoy the support of one another and, and enjoy life. Uh, together, whether they're living as a family together or um, uh, living separately, to be able to enjoy those relationships. Right. I know in places where I've worked in the past, um, oftentimes families are not involved, and the rationale, what, what I was told, well, you know, the, the individuals burned so many bridges, the family just has not involved anymore. And can you comment on that? Yes, it is common for people with a co-occurring disorder to not have very much and sometimes no contact with family members. And it is common for people to have uh, burned uh, some of the bridges that they may have with with family members. We have found in our surveys that between 60 and 80 percent of people with a major mental illness and a co-occurring substance use disorder actually have some degree of ongoing contact with family members. It might be once a week or maybe once a month but that there is a certain amount of contact and that many of these family members are interested and even want to have more contact but feel that they need better skills and, and help for managing those relationships and, and the stress associated with them. Um, we'll be right back, and Dr. Shirley Glenn will be joining us. Where we're going to talk more about family recovery for um, psychiatric disorders and co-occurring substance use disorders. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, we're talking with Dr. Kim Muser and Dr. Shirley Glenn will be joining us. She is a clinical research psychologist at the VA Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System, the West LA, and in the uh, VISN 22. Uh, Shirley, you're going to have to tell me what my rec is. <laughs> that must be uh, VA talk. Um, she is also a research psychologist in the UCLA Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences. She's a licensed psychologist in California who specialized in the treatment of persons with psychotic disorders. Dr. Glenn has also conducted extensive clinical research and recovery interventions for persons with serious and persistent psychiatric disorders, as well as for those with PTSD, including social skills training and family interventions. Welcome, Dr. Glenn. Um, Thank you. uh, We were talking in our last segment a little bit about behavioral family therapy um, for people and families who experience psychiatric disorders and co-occurring substance use disorders. And I'm just wondering from your perspective um, how you got involved with this and what you see the benefits are to this versus the traditional family therapy. Um, Well, thanks so much for asking and thank you for letting me be part of the program. Um, I think my own uh, reasons for getting involved in this work are twofold. First of all, as Kim mentioned earlier, um, I had tremendous enthusiasm about working with families and helping them provide the kind of supportive relationships and environment that could really help people recover from serious psychiatric illnesses. And we know that co-occurring 
substance use disorders are so common in people with serious psychiatric disorders that it seems to me that you really need to address both at once. Um, and, and in addition, I had had a fair amount of experience in my own life with family members who had struggled with a lot of these problems for quite a while. And it just made me acutely aware of how often families get ignored while treatment programs are evolving. And it made me even more committed to try to, in my professional life, provide some services to family and consumers in a structured way to help people get the skills they need to get on with their lives and have satisfying lives. Um, I know from our perspective, one of the benefits to this model is the fact that it's structured. People know what to expect. Um, and I know in previous working situations where there's been more, quote-unquote, family therapy involved, it seemed to be uh, more volatile and um and sometimes you never really knew what was going to come out of that session because someone may or may not be on a significant um, medication that would help with symptoms or they may still be actively using. Where within this model, um, it's been our experience that, this, that, that anybody can participate. I think you're absolutely right. I, I know from my own experience that... You know, one of the things that happens when people have serious psychiatric illnesses, um, and and it's only exacerbated if they also have co-occurring substance use disorders, is there's tremendous instability in how people are doing and uncertainty at any given day about how they'll respond to any sort of situation. And because of that... Um, unstructured therapies can be particularly problematic because it just increases the anxiety level of everybody involved, often including the therapist. And so one of the wonderful things about a behavioral family therapy model and some of the more newer evidence-based treatment models is they're very clear, they're very structured. When you walk in the room, you know what's going to be expected of you, you understand what skills that you'll be learning, you understand how to practice them at home, and that adds a tremendous amount of comfort and certainty to everyone, which can be really helpful in the recovery process. What can a family member expect in this model um, if they were to, like, first of all, if they're, if they're already engaged with a provider, how will they know whether they're getting family behavioral therapy versus some other type of therapy? Gee, that's a great question. Um, first of all, hopefully the therapist has told them about the program. And certainly when we do it, we usually start with an actual orientation session where the therapist, the consumer, and the family meet together and talk about what kind of treatment contract they want to develop to help the family and the consumer develop skills to um communicate better, solve problems better, understand the illness better. And then, in fact, once there is an agreement that they're all going to work on that together, they then proceed typically over a nine-month period, meeting weekly and then biweekly, actually working on acquiring the knowledge and skills with homework assignments between sessions so people can practice and careful attention paid to helping people establish goals that are important to them. Maybe the consumer wants to get a job. Maybe the family member wants to go back to school. And then making sure that they get attention every week or two on that goal to make sure they're getting skills and they're also 
improving their lives by meeting goals. So one of the major differences for this um, model is that the family members have their own independent goals that aren't reflective of the family just having a goal for the consumer, the participant. It's so true. Yes, and I think that that's one of the most unique parts of the behavioral family therapy model, that it isn't all focused on the consumer, the person with the psychiatric disorder or the co-occurring disorders. The real goal of the program is to improve the quality of everybody's life and to enable everybody in the family to move forward and to achieve personal goals they, they have. Which I know from our experience here at Westbridge, um, family members have really appreciated that and it's really helped them get perspective and it's helped them move beyond the illness um, in the family as well. Right. Another thing that Shirley said that I think is very important and um, uh, and a critical way of distinguishing the behavioral family therapy approach from uh, many of the other more traditional family therapy approaches is that it's very open and we often say transparent to everybody involved. Everybody knows what's going to happen, what the purpose of the program is, um, and in fact what the goals are that different people are working towards because what we really like is when we see different family members and family members are able to help each other work towards their own personal goals. And, and I think another unique thing for this program is that um, rather than talking about, let's say, Mary's schizophrenia, well, my family would read an article about schizophrenia in general, so it becomes very much the third person. And there's some kind of a paradox there that when it's the third person, people seem more comfortable talking about it. Was that by design? Well, it's the combination of strategies that are that are used. I think you're absolutely right. One way of educating family members and, and even consumers is by educating them about the nature of the illness uh, as it appears in uh, typical people and including other people who have the illness. The other thing that's a, a very powerful uh, educational tool is often we will connote the person who has the psychiatric illness or the co-occurring disorder as the expert. Now, the person doesn't always want to be the expert, and that's fine. We completely respect that. But many people who have the illness are willing to be the expert, and what that means is that they're in a position to be able to explain what the experience of the symptoms and other challenges are like. And what we find is helpful about that is, first, it gives a particular status to the person who has the psychiatric illness, who's often suffering from a, a lower, than, lower status than everybody else, and it recognizes that that person's experiences are valuable for everybody in terms of understanding the nature of the illness. So we both try to objectify it, as you were describing, in terms of a third person and, and talk about it as an illness in that way. But then we also try to make it personal uh, and help uh, individuals in the family understand the member who has uh, that particular illness. Um, you've both worked with folks who experience um, post-traumatic stress disorder, which seems to be more and more um, apparent now between the mortgage crisis, the war in Iraq, and a um, hundred other things going on. Is this model um, workable with, with families that are experiencing PTSD as well? I think it is. Um, you know, one of the challenges we have in PTSD right now is that we don't have a good scientific literature of evidence-based treatments so that to some extent it's not as if there have been like 10 or 15 family studies done to really understand what will help families um, where a family member has PTSD. 
So what we talk about more are best practices, which essentially are what can a clinician do at any given time, given their understanding of the literature, to try to help families. And certainly in my experience working with families with PTSD, that a model that provides education, structure, communication skills to compensate for people's difficulties with attention and problem solving over issues like irritability, lack of pleasure, or the common symptoms in PTSD can be extraordinarily helpful for some families. When we look at um, family members who are um, experiencing the psychiatric disorder or the substance use disorder, um, one of the things that I think is um, really important with, with this model is the comfort agreement that's established early on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, um, I'm just thinking that, like, in here, we've taken that model and used a comfort agreement for our staff meetings. And, you know, when things start to get awry in, in a family meeting, you always have that to go back to. You could probably tell me a little bit more about that. Comfort agreement? <laughs> yeah, I actually have not heard that term. <laughs> um, well, it's I, it's the maybe it's the goals. It's, okay, it's, it's part of the I believe it's part of the communication skills. When we do strategy. requesting a timeout and those kinds yes. of things. Okay, yes. I understand yes. exactly yes. what you're saying. Yes. Then we call it a comfort uh-huh. agreement. I'm not sure what. <laughs> But it's called in the- <laughs> I like that, though. No, that's a wonderful way to talk about it because it actually is. It's helping really people diffuse situations when things get very tense by, you know, making an agreement that they will use good, good communication skills but talk about a problem down the road, right, once they've had the chance to collect up their thoughts, right. maybe in a couple of hours or something. And, and the critical piece there, of course, is family members agreeing together, we will come back to revisit this. It won't just get lost in the shuffle. Right. Um, I've never heard of it as a comfort agreement, but I have to say I love the title. Well, I'm sorry I threw you there. Um, <laughs> we just uh, <laughs> didn't mean to do that. But um, we found that it was it was just a nice term for, for folks. That, um, it, and, and families seemed to buy into it really well, and, and we just call it a comfort agreement because sounded good. It's great. I think I'm going to take it. You're welcome to take it. I thought we were taking it from you. So um, uh, there you go. Um, Okay. okay. Um, We'll be right back with uh, Dr. Muser and Dr. Glenn to talk more about uh, behavioral family therapy. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. 
for the most current and up-to-date information and options in childbearing, family health, and parenting. Tune in to Celeste Ranisi's Timely Topics in Childbirth, broadcasting every Wednesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. If you don't know your options, you don't have any. America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We have Dr. Shirley Glenn and Dr. Kim Muser today talking with us about behavioral family therapy for psychiatric disorders and co-occurring substance use disorders. Um, I was wondering if we could talk in this segment a little bit about what is recovery. I mean, it's, it's like one of those global words that has many meanings. In terms of family, what, what is recovery? Well, I'll take a stab and then Kim can join in. Um, You know, if we look at it in terms of a drug, uh, a typical drug problem, I think we're all sort of familiar. It's the notion of being in a process of trying to abstain from use today and improve your life a little bit. I think when we bring it into the psychiatric disorder realm, it changes a little bit. Professionals typically talk about two kinds of recovery, if you will. There's sort of the objective kind of recovery that everyone can see. It's things like hasn't been in the hospital for a long time, maybe holding a job, um, is living independently, the kinds of things that most people want in their lives. But also we talk about kind of a, a subjective or a personal meeting, which is things like um, the consumer has hope about the future, feels a sense of confidence in their life, has um, a belief that they're doing worthwhile things with their life. So it's not only what others can see, but it's also a personal attitude that involves um, feeling like you have a place in the world and, and, and people who care about you. So when we think about it with people who have a psychiatric disorder and a co-occurring substance use disorder, we're really talking about all three things. We're talking about limiting use, living independently and not going to the hospital very much, but also that personal sense that you have a place in the world, that you have hope, that you think things can get better for yourself. You want to add anything to that, Kim? I think Shirley hit all of the, the big points, and I think that the, the last of them is often what helps people um, so much in the first two, which is that having a sense of purpose, having a sense of meaning, uh, a place in, in the world, as Shirley says, is part of what gives people the motivation um, and, and ability to make it each day at a time without using substances, 
uh, and the desire and, and ability to learn skills to become more independent, uh, to have better and, and closer relationships with, with other people and, and to stay out of the hospital. I know for some families they feel discouraged because from their concept recovery means I'm going to have my son back or my yeah. daughter back, the one that, that I knew before they got ill or before they started to use substances. And there's a grieving process that seems to occur for a lot of families because Oftentimes with severe mental illness, as you know, the potential that they once saw um, isn't, isn't there anymore. I think that you're right, Mary, that there is a grieving process that many family members go through. At the same time, I think it's helpful for them to go through that process while also recognizing that life throws challenges up to everybody. Uh, as my brother-in-law uh, has said more than once, life throws everybody curveballs. And one can't quite be sure what curveballs might have been thrown um, had it not been for the development of uh, a mental illness or substance use disorder or, or both. And so while grieving is often a, a part of the process that family members go through, we think it's also important for them to be able to see their relative, their offspring, whoever the individual may be, brother or sister, um, as a person, a person with a life, a person capable of developing a, a worthwhile and, and meaningful life and, and benefiting from and enjoying family relationships so that they don't become consumed um, uh, with the grief um, and preoccupied with who their son or uh, relative um, is not. Right. And I think, I think sometimes that, that is everything else in life. It's a process, being able to accept your family member for who they are and not who you hoped they would be or you envision them to be. That's often for families an incredible challenge. You know, my heart just goes out to people because it really often involves kind of surrendering a lot of old wishes and desires and seeing the consumer with a new, in a new light. And I would say that just like we've talked about grief for family members, many consumers have a lot of grief. You know, because they often have had dreams for their lives that are now going to be very difficult to attain. And I think, you know, as clinicians, we need to be really sensitive to everyone's evolving concept, you know, and helping people have hope that even though things are different, um, we can still have hope for future achievements and goals. And if we hang in there for the long haul, and I mean it's often years, I mean it's it's really remarkable the kinds of changes you can see people make. And, and I think that's the, the other nice thing about this model is that it can not only work with single families but with multi-families and that families are able to draw on that and support each other. Absolutely. I think it's the ability to see other family members uh, in the same way that people with uh, psychiatric illnesses or uh, substance use disorders benefit from seeing other people who have been on that road to recovery. Family members benefit from the, uh, the support and encouragement of, of others with similar experiences. In, in trying to find a, a place in the family for, and maybe that's not the right expression, but as as the individual um, begins to recover in his or her own co-occurring um, disorders, the family will recover too and begin to grow in their own identity, as not only individually but as a family, as they become less consumed with the symptoms of the illnesses. And and that's that's a struggle 
that, that's two-sided as well. You know, I think it's great you brought that up. I mean, I think that's really a wonderful thing because it's absolutely true that many families find, you know, if you, if you think about the fact that you may have had a family member who got ill, a son or a daughter who was 15 or 16, or a wife whom you were newly married who developed a bipolar illness or something like that, um, you know, if we love these these people, then we can really spend a, quite a bit of time devoting our lives to helping them, you know. And then as they get better, it can require quite a shift to kind of go, okay, all my attention was there. And, in fact, the data sometimes show us that that may not be the best way to be, but that's the way I've been. And now I, uh, I as a family member, I'm going to pull back and kind of say, okay, what are the dreams I have? What are the desires I have? And that shift of focus that you're mentioning can be a very complicated thing. You know, people can feel guilty about it. People can feel concerned about what does it mean if I quit watching all the time. And helping people get a comfort level with that can be a core part of the family therapy. Right, in the same way that the individual with a co-occurring disorder or psychiatric illness uh, needs to continue or in, um, developing and moving on with, with their lives, uh, so do the family members. And that often involves uh, beginning to define a new meaning in one's life, especially for family members whose energies have been primarily focused around helping their loved ones. For years. I mean, yep. I, I know we have some, some family members who have been advocating for their son or daughter since school age. Oh, yeah. Things have, you know... Something was different early on, and, and it wasn't until later on that, uh, that you know, the illness reared its ugly head. But these are families that have been advocating from an early age and focused from an early age. So um, it, it's hard for them to move on sometimes. Yep, that's one of the ways in which behavioral family therapy sometimes helps because early on in, in the program when we... Uh, usually try to have uh, an individual meeting with each person just to understand where they're coming from, understand some of the changes that they would like to see. One of the things that we ask them to start thinking about is the kind of changes that they might like to see in their own life other than changes that might involve the, the person with a co-occurring disorder. And sometimes family members are taken aback a little bit or a bit surprised by that. Um, and we come back to it and talk more about the value of each person having their own goals and, and moving forward in their own life as, as well as helping loved ones. And I think if maybe you both could talk a little bit about um, part of the, uh, uh, the program later on in terms of the problem solving and the format for that because um, that's great language and we use it, um, we, we use that model not outside of, uh, behavioral family therapy for other instances as well, but maybe you could talk to the to tell our listeners about problem solving. Kim, you want to start? Sure. Okay. Uh, our approach uh, to problem solving, and it's not like we invented it because this has been uh, adopted by many uh, marital and uh, family approaches that have a cognitive behavioral background, is to take the process of solving problems or achieving goals and to break it down into a series of steps that are designed to get everybody to work together, to get everybody involved in the process, 
uh, and to minimize stress and uh, conflict in, in the process of uh, solving problems or achieving goals. So the way it's taught in behavioral family therapy is we break it down into a six-step process, and we focus on having uh, family members elect a person who leads the family through the six steps of problem solving. And those six steps include first defining the problem, defining it in a way that everybody feels like they've had a say, and then coming up with a definition that everybody can agree to a certain extent that they would be willing to work on. We often say the problem is owned or the goal is owned by everybody um, in the family if it involves more than one person. Then the second step is brainstorming, coming up with as many solutions uh, or ways of achieving the goal as possible. And the hardest part uh, of the brainstorming uh, uh, step is to tell people not to start evaluating the solution. We're trying to get as free a spirit of brainstorming possible solutions uh, to a particular problem or goal as, as possible. Then the third step is evaluating the pros and cons, the advantages and disadvantages of each solution. And just like in the brainstorming uh, part, we try to get everybody's opinion in terms of the advantages and disadvantages of each solution. Then the fourth step is picking the best solution, or sometimes there's a combination of solutions that's the best solution. Or you may identify one solution as the one you're going to try first and another one that you're going to try second. And that often flows naturally from the evaluation of the advantages and disadvantages. Sometimes a little bit of compromise and negotiation may be uh, required if one person thinks that one solution is a lot better uh, and another person favors another solution. But the whole idea being you try to come up with an agreement in terms of the best solution or combination. Then the fifth step is to make a plan for implementing the solution. Uh, the plan needs to consider things such as what resources are needed, who's going to do what, when is it going to happen. And then the last step is picking out a time to follow up on the problem solving. Not every problem is solved the first time around. Often you need to keep coming back to a problem. But if you do keep coming back to a problem, almost every problem and almost every goal you can make significant headway towards. I think I want to add one other thing to what Kim was saying. Kim we'll gave be it. right back. Oops, sorry. Shirley, we'll let you have it. This It'll hold. We'll get back from uh, our commercial It'll break. Hold. We'll be right back. <laughs> A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Autism One, a conversation of hope, hosted by Betsy Hicks, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable, and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, 
Betsy offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism, spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, adult services, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcasts each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, Before we went to break, we were talking about... um, the problem-solving skill building that occurs in behavioral family therapy, and I had to cut Dr. Glenn off. So, um, Shirley, uh, what you've got the mic. Okay, I just wanted to add something to put a little flesh and bones onto what Kim was talking about. When we describe the process, it seems a little simplistic, but I have a long list that I always use when I'm teaching about the kinds of problems people have solved with this procedure. And it goes everything from keeping the bathroom clean to deciding whether to stay in a marriage to choosing a religion. So I just wanted to point out that even though it sounds like six simple steps, it can be extraordinarily useful to people in all aspects of their lives. It is also effective when you've got situations at work. Uh-huh. <laughs> too. You know, we've used it in work of other non-clinical situations, so... Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Um, this is an evidence-based practice. You talked earlier about consensus-based and evidence-based. And um, what is the data that supports behavioral family therapy? Uh, there's data from both the um, field of uh, substance uh, use disorder treatment as well as psychiatric treatment in terms of the effectiveness of behavioral family therapy. In general, what the studies find is that it's uh, very effective at reducing relapses and rehospitalizations of the psychiatric disorder, and research on a number of different models, including behavioral family therapy and similar couples uh, counseling approaches, find that it's effective in reducing uh, substance abuse um, as well. There is uh, less uh, research, uh, but there is research ongoing that has looked at it in people with co-occurring disorders. Uh, but if we know that it's effective for each of the uh, disorders, substance abuse and the mental illness, uh, we have every reason to believe that it's also effective for when you have the two disorders uh, together, which occurs so often. you want to add anything to that, Shirley? No, I think Kim did a good job. Uh, you gave us a, a few examples in terms of how problem-solving worked. Do either one of you have a clinical example to share, like a real-life example to share with our listeners about how behavioral family therapy might might have worked? Think for a moment. With someone? Yeah. I'm, I'm going quickly going through my head and all the families I've seen, which one bears a little discussing. 
Are you looking for an example of problem solving proper or more a description of how the um, behavioral family therapy um, helped a a family overall? Overall. Um, I could talk about one. Uh, This is someone I saw. It was a young woman, and uh, she was in her early 20s. Um, She came in with her folks who were uh, just... Um, had filed for divorce um, right when they started, which I think was part of the stressor, which led to um, a psychotic exacerbation. She had gone to a very, um, you know, elite college, but basically had gotten very ill about two years two years into it. Quit going to school. Um, had horrible challenges with it and decided that one of the best things she could do to help her feel calm inside was to smoke a lot of pot. So she had psychotic symptoms and she was smoking a lot of pot and she was incredibly distressed because her folks were splitting up. So that's a tricky family to do behavioral family therapy with because there's tension between the folks. But they both loved her very much and came in. I worked with them for, I would say, probably nine months, mostly weekly, um, and had to do a lot of work not only about managing her illness, helping her see the value of medication and begin to set goals and get back on a schedule since she had left school, but also a lot also about dealing with the fact that helping her do some uh, real careful observation to see what was happening when she smoked a lot of marijuana. And actually, she was able to come to see that it was making her more and more paranoid, which meant she had to take more medication, which she hated because she had side effects. So I would say over that nine months, she basically was to live, move into independent living and cut down her marijuana use and begin to start taking some local college classes, although at that point she hadn't been able to get back to school. Um, and I subsequently heard, um, again, it, that uh, she was continued to do well with her family and they continued to help her. Um, but really the stress of returning to a very prestigious college was just going to be too much for her. So she basically continued going to a JC and working part-time. Um, and that's a family where I think education and communication skills and problem solving about urges to smoke pot and how to spend time was really critical. Right. And no one in the family ended up feeling guilty or feeling like they were being targeted. No. I I actually think with many of the families I see, they're so grateful for information they feel so out of the loop that when they came in and somebody was really trying to help them, they were very they were very um, appreciative of that. I think, you know, of course, this was their daughter, and it was heartbreaking to them. Um, but they were very appreciative of the help, and I don't think they ever felt blamed. And I think that's the one of the basic um, advantages to this model is that families don't end up feeling blamed. We have so many folks that come to Westbridge who have been in multiple treatments, have had multiple mm-hmm. psychoeducation, family systems kinds of um, experiences that they come to us and say, we're therapied out. We don't want it. You know, we've had enough. So that we call this family education and support because um, when we change the name, people, since we got therapy out of this, uh-huh. people wanted yeah. to, to be part of it. It's yep. the same thing. We just yeah. changed the name. and. Yeah. and and everyone is like so relieved. <laughs> no one's getting shamed. No one's getting blamed. Yeah. Um, 
and it provides right. a foundation within the family for people to um, learn how to be a family again. Right. And in addition to alleviating feelings of, of guilt and, and, and the like that many families have at the beginning before they've um, learned more about the illness, it gives family members some concrete ways of, of helping a loved one, partly in terms of helping a loved one articulate what their own personal recovery goals are and moving forward, and also partly in terms of helping them manage uh, the illness and stay out of the hospital and to do as well as possible. Yes. For providers out there who may be listening to us, how will they? How can they um, either implement behavioral family therapy or learn more about it? Well, one way they can is that there is a uh, book that describes all of the uh, things that uh, Shirley and I have been talking about in the behavioral family therapy model, uh, with lots of examples um, written by uh, myself and Shirley. Um, that was published by. New Harbinger Publications in 1999. That's the second edition of the book, and it's called Behavioral Family Therapy for Psychiatric Disorders. And, and people can also go um, to the SAMHSA website um, where, so, so I'm not exactly sure, but you can Google S-A-M-H-S-A toolkits. And one of the things that the government has done, um, and SAMHSA is one of the government agencies that helps support mental health services, um, they um, supported the development of a family toolkit for families of people with serious psychiatric illnesses. And although it's not exclusively on behavioral family therapy, there's some discussion of that model as well, and it's another way to get some resources. And for programs that want to implement this, are there any upcoming trainings or um, classes or supervision experiences? Or you know, the primary one that I I know myself because I'm doing it right now is um, part of what I do is work for the Veterans Administration, and we're providing loads of national trainings for that. Um, there's a big push within the VA to get evidence-based treatments up for families um, of veterans, so I'm working on that. Um, and people can always contact us if they want to learn more about trainings we're doing in the area of wherever they are. Yep. Um, thank you both for joining us this afternoon. This hour has just flown by. and um, I would you. recommend behavioral family therapy for anybody out there who's listening. Absolutely. Um, learn more about it. Thank you both. Thank you so much, Mary. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.